is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's podcast, we chat to Formula One driver and JEC member Mike Wilds. Richard West has tips for a career in motorsport, and Ray Searles gives us the inside track on the Summer Jaguar Festival cancellation. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Hope you're all keeping well and doing what you can to make the most of the summer months that we've got at the moment. And thank you to all of you as well who've been in touch with the podcast over recent weeks. Uh, Richard Gagan says, I've only just recently discovered the podcast and I must say that I think it's fantastic. Congratulations to you all and keep up the good work. Richard, we will. And also Tom from Swallows Independent Jaguar will be answering your query later on in this episode. So stay with us. Keith Thomas also got in touch and says, What a discovery. Just wanted to drop you a quick note of congratulations on the excellent and most entertaining, informative podcast. Nice. Until now, I've only subscribed to one other podcast ever, but this is now doubled to two. I started on number 11 and after just a week of squeezing in episodes where possible, now have just four left to fully catch up. It's the way of doing it, you know, binge on them if you need to catch up, uh, but you will miss it once you catch up. You'll be hungry for the next one. Uh, He's been enjoying eavesdropping, as he puts it, on the chats and interviews that we've been featuring over the past few weeks' episodes. Uh, But he says, on a personal level, though, I feel that the podcast has drawn me closer to the JEC and enhanced my membership experience by listening and engaging remotely with other folks who feel just as I do about this wonderful mark of ours. Absolutely. My thanks to the production and look forward to listening to many, many more. We look forward to having you listen to many, many more, Keith. And thanks for the nice words. It's great to hear that so many of you are enjoying the podcast. And don't forget you can get in touch with us anytime you like via the contact page at jcpodcast.com. And in particular, if you think there's someone that we should be interviewing, get in touch, let us know. jcpodcast.com, you can use the contact form or, of course, the voice recorder that gets you on this very show. It's all up there for you to get in touch with us. We've also had a number of questions recently about what the guidance is for the current COVID restrictions, and those are still kept bang up to date via the club website at jc.org.uk. And although some of the sections of the hospitality sector have been able to reopen, there are still significant restrictions in place, sadly. So you can get all of the details of them on the news pages at jc.org.uk. And it's the result of those restrictions that brought about the sad news this week that this year's Summer Jaguar Festival, which was due to be held at Newby Hall, was to be cancelled until 2021. And joining us on the podcast now to tell us more is JEC Chairman Ray Searles. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. Hello, Wayne. Tough decision for all of the events team to take to cancel this event, especially after all the effort that went into postponing from the May dates earlier in the year. It's been quite hard work, hasn't it? Oh, it's been it's been very hard work, and I you know I don't want to um, I don't want to sort of make it sound worse than it really is because let's face it, it's it's not been a matter of life and death. But the situation has been changing, as you know, so much over the last few weeks. Um, and I think we were hoping that things might improve enough, that there was a glimmer of hope that we might put the, the event on. Um, and as we've started to see what the guidelines look like and the sort of precautions that we would have to make uh, to keep everybody safe, 
uh, and after we've consulted as well with Newby Hall, I think we, we concluded that, you know, although we really do want to put something on, um, it's what the events team is there for, uh, we don't believe we can put on an event that will be satisfying uh, and enjoyable. So we, we think better uh, to cancel now uh, and focus on next year and, and get our planning right for next year's summer festival. There's sort of two elements to this because, of course, there was the day event for the Summer Jaguar Festival at Newby Hall, but also the weekend accommodation packages that were based at the Warner's Leisure Hotel, Nid Hall, just down the road. How's the experience been working with those guys and, and what's the process from now on with Nid Hall? It's been good working with them. It's been tricky over the last few weeks, uh, particularly um, working with Newby because they uh, put pretty much their whole team on furlough. So there literally was nobody that we could talk to to have a, a sensible conversation about what, what the potential was uh, for August or not. Um, but, but they've been very helpful and they've been very understanding. Um, and they, they realise this is, this is you know, very, very exceptional circumstances as we do. Um, so in the end, I think, I think everybody has, has come to the right decision in a, in a very agreeable way. So for those who booked weekend packages at Nid Hall, you're asking them not to contact the club. What should they do? People who, who had booked originally uh, at Nid will recall that um, the original process when we did the postponement was uh, that it was the um, the Warners booking team that, that contacted uh, our members and uh, they seemed to handle that very well. Uh, we got good feedback and the process this time is going to be exactly the same. Uh, so the Warners team will over the next couple of weeks be contacting everybody who has a booking currently uh, at Nid Hall for that weekend and essentially giving them the options uh, that they can they can do. Uh, which is they could stay there, of course, and, and have a nice weekend if they feel like having a weekend, uh, or they can move to another Warner's uh, uh, property, or they can indeed get, get their, their money refunded now under the Warner's guarantee. Okay, so if you are one of those who has booked a weekend package for the Summer Jaguar Festival, or indeed any of the advanced entry packages for newbie hall don't contact the jaguar enthusiast club just yet we have your details we will be in touch with you as soon as possible so sit tight and we will be in touch with you with full refunds and your options going forward talking of going forward ray it gives us all more time to look forward to uh, e60 next year and the fantastic return of the summer jaguar festival to blenheim for a very special anniversary doesn't it well it is i mean it's it's clearly, as you've said, it's E60, um, so that's the 60th anniversary of, of the E-Type. Uh, but I don't think we should forget the other two anniversaries that are going on uh, that we also want to celebrate, which is um, the 60th of the Mark 10 uh, next year, which is uh, often forgotten, uh, but also the 70th anniversary of the first Jaguar win at Le Mans with the C-Type. So you know, we have some really great things to celebrate and you know, we're now very heavily involved in, in planning a really great weekend. A weekend that I think, you know, when, when all of, we all look back at this year, we'll say, well, you know, this is going to be a really great way of, of getting the events on the road again and having a really good time. Well, of course, you can keep up to date with all of the new announcements 
for the Summer Jaguar Festival for 2021 when it returns with those fantastic anniversaries, all part of the year of celebrations for 60 years of the E-Type via the Jaguar Enthusiast Club magazine that you'll get for free if you join the JEC. Uh, just uh, click the Join Now button if you're not already a member at jecpodcast.com and follow the steps and that magazine will drop on your doorstep. And also, of course, the Friday Spotlight email that goes out every Friday, strangely, that you can also subscribe to via jcpodcast.com. So, uh, Ray, for the rest of the year then, obviously a tough year for the club in general. Usually we'd be out about having regional meetings and a full calendar of events. Just a message for those members out there uh, for the rest of the year from the JEC as chairman. We obviously appreciate everybody's patience uh, while we've had to take some of these decisions. Um, I know some of the members have been meeting together uh, on Zoom uh, and we did make uh, facilities available for the regions to use Zoom uh, through the club uh, so that they didn't get get cut off uh, with the usual 40-minute cut-off that there is on the free surface with Zoom. Uh, And I know lots of people have been been enjoying meetings on that. So, you know, we want to thank everybody for, for sticking with us um, we appreciate a lot of the feedback we've been getting, very positive feedback on keeping the magazine going and keeping members informed via the various channels that you've already just, just mentioned. So thank you, everybody. And, you know, we will do our best uh, to try and find something we can do before the end of the year. Uh, and if not, then you know, I hope to see as many members as possible at Blenheim Palace next year. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West shares his greatest stories from a lifetime in motorsport. This week, I asked him what tips and advice he had to share for anyone young wanting to enter a career in motorsport. And there's some very sound advice to follow. There's no such thing as enough experience. And uh, certainly, I know you and I have talked about this, you know, over a glass of wine or two, you you continue to learn. And one of the things I found very early on in my career, it's very important not to, to, and I know it sounds crazy, not to aim ridiculously high when you're a young person starting out, because what a team is looking for, a team owner or team manager or PR manager, they're looking for people that have had experience. My own son, uh, Christian, who now works for Hewland Engineering in a production capacity. When he was 16 years old, I gave him the opportunity to come to China with me to do a pit stop for Huawei, the telecommunications company. And we flew a Formula One car <clears throat> out to their head office. And I, and I said to him, do you want to come to China with me? And he said, blimey, Dad, to do what? And I said, come and do a, a pit stop on a Williams car, you know, for a number of people on training day. And months later, we incorporated that into his CV. And there weren't too many 16-year-olds around at the time who'd taken part in a Williams pit stop. And my advice to young people is whatever level that you get in at, rallying, sports car racing, karting, it really doesn't matter. You've got to prove that you've had certain experiences. So even if you become a very lowly paid or even a an unpaid helper at race events over a weekend when you're at an early formative age, you can use that and spin that well. Because if you've gone off and you've done some work around, you know, say it's the Porsche series in BTCC and you've gone there and worked for the weekend, 
from that, people will start to recognize your strengths and your weaknesses. And team managers and team owners are very sharp. They will say, you know what, I quite like the way you did that. Or, you know, I don't think that's for you, but you were really good with the sponsors or you were really good with the physios or the, the dietitians at the weekend. <clears throat> and you build on that experience because the one thing you've got to realize, I think, as a young person looking at motorsport as a career, it's a long game. And the people that you meet on the way up, you sure as hell are going to need on the way down because with all careers, you know, there are the odd individuals who have stratospheric careers, but there are times when perhaps it doesn't go quite as well as you were hoping, you make a move and it doesn't work out the way you hoped in terms of your career. It's a relationship building exercise and the more people you can meet, the more things that you do, the more events you get involved in, the stronger and stronger your CV becomes. So if you're out there thinking, I want to go and work for Mercedes-Benz in F1, or I want to go and work for Ferrari or Williams or McLaren or Renault, think about what the person at the other end is going to be looking at. What have you done? Where has your experience been? And however much experience you've got right the way through the different disciplines, it really, really helps when you finally get that opportunity as I did at Williams in 84, and Frank said to me, what have you actually done? And I said, I've worked with Tony Pond, I've worked with Timo Salonen, I've worked with Roger Clark in rallying, I've run my own PR program now for you know a rally team up in Widnes in Cheshire for six months, and suddenly it all starts to stack up, and that was, then you get the chance. And what you make of it, once you get that chance, clearly is entirely up to you, but no, no opportunity is too small. Learn from it, put it in the CV, and keep chasing the goal because once you get there it's like we talked in a recent you know interview about what it's like to be at Le Mans you'll look back on those years and you'll think my word it was worth all that effort because I'm here now with the big boys and how fantastic it is to be here you're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast sharing the passion sharing the knowledge all your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar has been receiving your technical questions for the podcast as usual and has all the answers to the questions submitted. So, what have you got this week, Tom? Firstly, Malcolm Fisher asks, I have a 1997 XK Coupe and out of the blue the windows have stopped closing a final fraction of an inch. You can't leave the car in the rain as there is no way to close and both windows have been affected at the same time. Okay Malcolm, now this is quite a common fault on the earlier XK8 and I'm sure you're probably aware of the window reset procedure. I'd firstly carry this out. To do this you simply hold the window switch down and hold until the window is fully down and you hear a very slight clicking coming from the motor. Then repeat the same process by holding the window switch up until you hear the same clicking noise. I'll also check to see if the door open warning is on on the instrument pack as this needs to see this closed before the windows will operate the last inch seal. If this warning is on, I would point towards a possible fault in the door latch, but it seems strange for both of these to fail at the same time. Lastly, we often get issues with the A-pillar wiring connectors. This is the large plug that goes from the door to the main body. These often corrode or have dry joints and cause all sorts of problems. So I recommend taking these apart, cleaning with electrical cleaner and grease then reassemble and then you can test the windows again Malcolm and you may also need to to reset the windows after you've taken these connectors off. 
Richard Geegan asks, I have an S-Type 2.7 diesel and a restricted performance light is on, but the vehicle isn't restricted. Restricted performance message appears whilst either left for a few minutes to idle or if driven about a quarter of a mile up the road. It appears whether the engine is hot or cold. Now he's used a code reader to, to scan the vehicle and he has a code present of P132D and the only information he can find out about this code is relating to turbo concerns. Performance seems unrestricted, it can rev freely to the red line and the only notable difference is it has a check manage light present accompanied by the restricted performance message. Now again Richard, this is something we get quite a lot with a 2.7 diesel S-Type. If you've been listening to the podcast, we quite often refer to using the genuine Jaguar Diagnostics or Autologic as the Falco's mentions are pretty generic. We often get some further information with these tools. Now unfortunately the P132D code is relating to one of the turbos on the vehicle. We would normally carry out a wiring pinpoint check from the turbo actuator to the ECU and carry out an actuation test to see if the actuator on the turbo is cycling correctly. Normally the actuator sticks or isn't smooth in operation. This is why the car will perform normally but logs this code. So I'm afraid Richard you are possibly going to need a turbo but as I've said this information is only based just on that one code you have given us. So I would highly recommend some further testing just to confirm this. Well thanks to Tom for that. On the next episode Tom's going to be taking us behind the scenes of his preparations for the first round of racing at Thruxton as part of the JC Championship later this month. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Next on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'm joined by a Formula One driver. A Formula One driver who is a member of our club. It is Mike Wilds. Welcome along, Mike. Hello, good evening. Thanks very much for calling. It's great to have you on the podcast, and I'm going to go straight in and ask you, as someone, as we will uncover in the course of this conversation, who has driven some amazing cars and had an amazing career in motorsport, why Jaguar for you? I, I'm the very proud owner of a 1964 Series 1 3.8 E-Type. My brother raced motorcycles back in the uh, late 50s, early 1960s. And I used to go with him. Um, it was a secret from our parents. Uh, I don't think they would have approved. So my brother kept his, he had two bikes, uh, a 7R AJS 350 and a BSA 500 Gold Star that he used to race. He kept them in a friend's garage in New Cross in South London. And we would go to Brands Hatch or wherever, we had a little van, go and pick the bikes up and just say to our parents we were going out for the day. At Brands Hatch in 1961, he introduced me to a man who eventually I raced against and became a, a, a good friend uh, called Mike Halewood. And Mike was a world champion and then went on to drive uh, racing cars uh, with a wonderful career. He arrived at Brands Hatch in a red open-top E-Type Jaguar. He was one of the few people who could get hold of one at the time, purely, I think, because of his um, status within motorsport. And I looked at this car, and bearing in mind we had a van, 
and A35s or whatever were the cars of the day. It looked like a spaceship. And my brother, Johnny, introduced me to Mike, and I was so overawed by this car, he took me for a ride. And I vowed that day that I would own an E-Type. And thank God I have. You managed it. Eventually. <laughs> you had an interesting route into motorsport where you worked with industries and businesses that were around motorsport in order to get your foot in the door. But looking back, when was the first moment that you realised that motorsport was a passion of yours? And where did that interest come from? It was way before I actually drove a racing car. I was born and brought up in Chiswick in West London. And I liked my brother's motorcycles. I enjoyed motorcycle racing and I've always had motorcycles in my life. But there was a garage called the Checkered Flag in Chiswick High Road and they sold wonderful cars. They had Lotus 11s and D-types and Lotus Elans and all these wonderful sports cars and I was fascinated by them. And after school, I would go up to the checkered flag and look through the windows. And eventually, uh, I was there so much, they invited me in and offered me a Saturday job washing cars, which I took gladly. And then I found out that at the back, there was a man called Chaz Beatty building single-seater racing cars for the checkered flag called Geminis. They were little Formula Junior cars. And I was so keen that Chess says, why don't, why don't you come to a race meeting? I asked my parents, they said yes, and one weekend I jumped in the truck with Chaz, went to Brands Hatch, and it was, I say this to everybody, it was literally a eureka moment. I got out of the truck, there was a noise, there was a smell, there was an atmosphere, and at that point I knew this is what I was going to to strive to do for the rest of my life. And every waking moment from that time was how we didn't have any money. We lived in a little flat. Uh, how was I going to achieve that ambition? You took those steps to achieve that ambition by working with various different companies. So, And one of them was quite a major tyre manufacturer, wasn't it? Yes. Um, luckily, in the next town to Chiswick is a, a town called Brentford. And on the A4 on the Great West Road, there was a massive tyre factory. And it occurred to me that the more people I knew and the more I was involved in motorsport, it could do me no harm to try and further this ambition to race. So I went to Firestone tyre rubber company because I knew they had a European race tyre division and somebody said well you know you could be a race tyre engineer or you could be a truck driver for the taking the tyres to around Europe and wherever and I just knocked on the door and said I'd like to work in your racing division and they very kindly said they didn't have any jobs in the racing division but they did have a job in the export department for the normal passenger road tyres. And if I joined the company, they would do their best that if a, a position became available in the racing 
department, uh, I would get a chance at an interview for the job. And true to their word, I stayed doing paperwork at the export department for God knows how long. And one day the boss called me into the office. We have a vacancy in the racing division and it was for operations manager. I uh, running all the trucks, organizing production to, of race tires to fit in with the Formula One calendar, the sports car calendar, uh, Formula Three and so on. And um, so I joined as operations manager, really not having a clue. And they very kindly gave me the opportunity. And also when they were short staffed, I would then go and be a race tire engineer at various race meetings, Le Mans 24 hour race, some Grand Prix, uh, and take the tire temperatures and so on to give to the, um, the scientists and so on back at, at base so that they could develop faster tyres and so on. Uh, it was a brilliant job. And the 750 Motor Club comes into the story at this point, doesn't it? And they met in London at the time, so they were obviously easily accessible for you, and you went to join them. And that's, I guess, where things started to really take off from that point onwards. Yes. I was saving money like mad because I wanted to buy a racing car, but I didn't really know what type of racing car. And I took... Um, advice and people said well the the most economic way to go motor racing is with the 750 motor club be it in 750 formula or 1172 formula at the time and i joined what was called the special builders group which met once a month in a uh, a pub in battersea and living in chiswick i could uh, jump on my motorbike as i had then and go and listen to people like eric broadley uh, who prior to starting Lola Cars, would give talks on how he was building his specials and, and so on. Um, and on one occasion, I was talking to a man called Lou Bergonzi, and Lou had something called a DRW. It was the first one ever made. It was a Mark I, and it was fitted with an 1172 side valve engine. It was basically a copy, I suppose, of the Lotus 7. And... In passing, he mentioned he was going to sell it because he wanted to buy another car. And I said, how much do you want for it? And he said, 280 pounds. Well, I was probably earning 15 pounds a week at the time. Um, and I had been working in clubs and bars, what have you, six or seven nights a week to save money. So I did have a pot of money, which is probably about 100 pounds. And my mother then said she would, stand guarantor for me to borrow the other 180 pounds and one very cold winter's evening in the end of 1964 um, I bought Lou's car and he delivered it to our flats in Chiswick um, on a trailer I got it with a trailer he parked it outside in the road and that was it. I was the owner of a racing car, but I hadn't really thought it through. I had, how was I going to tow it anywhere? Or I was the proud owner of this racing car, so I didn't actually race it until uh, May 1965. And it stayed outside the flats under a tarpaulin. My father and I used to just tinker with it, start it up, make sure it was okay. Um, and we did eventually, we tested it at Silverstone. 
and uh, I entered a sprint at Brands Hatch and then went to my first motor race after again saving up enough money. We went to the 750 Motor Club race meeting at Snetterton in May 1965 and it was just probably one of the best days of my life. Amazing that you've come from sort of inner city London and then suddenly you find yourself um, you know after a lot of saving and as you say having the car under a tarpaulin at home you find yourself sat on the grid of an actual race that must have been quite intimidating that day yes I didn't feel very well to be honest I was so nervous I was walking on feeling nauseous I suppose but full of excitement at what was going to happen I had no idea what to do uh, we fitted a tow hitch by the way to my mum's venerable Morris Minor Thousand and we had to leave the day before because it wouldn't tow more than 25 miles an hour and it was before motorways so we drove all through the night towing this thing at 25 miles an hour to Snetterton I took advice when I got there I said you what do I what do I do uh, it and somebody said, oh, well, you, you've got to get the car scrutineered. You've got to sign on. And, and people were wonderful. People were very, very helpful. And I heard that our race had to be called to the assembly area for practice. And I just followed other guys to, and off I went and did practice. For some reason, they had a problem with um, the timekeeping on the day. And I looked as though I, I just learnt my way around Snetterton, the old circuit. And they put me somewhere about two-thirds of the way down the grid. I sat on the grid. We didn't wear seatbelts that time, so I actually got out of the car because I, I was so nervous. I got out and I was talking to my brother, who came to so support me for a change. And um, I jumped back in when this two-minute SIG board went up and... Uh, a man with the union flag started to raise it and I gave the car some revs. I hadn't thought about doing a practice start or what have you, but for some reason I got it, got it perfectly right because I shot between the cars on the rows in front of me and going down to, um, I think Richie's the first corner at Snetterton, there was nobody in front of me. And, um, I was looking around, have I done something wrong? I didn't really know what to do. And of course I put the brakes on and then lots of cars came past. And I just had the most wonderful time. I learned so much in that race um, and eventually finished third, which was not bad for my first ever race. Amazing. It's a real stark difference and contrast to how motorsport is now. You know, you just don't get young guys hopping into a car at the weekend and giving it a go anymore, do you really? It's I suppose it, the whole sport is, motorsport is so different now. It's, it's not possible to do what I did, which was just go and buy a, a race license and go racing, mm. not knowing anything flag signals anything quite amazing but it, again i was absolutely hooked from that point on i'm still in somewhere in this office there is an egg cup size trophy from that first ever race um i saved up more money went to silverstone for my second race and i had driven there before because that's where i tested the car um and i came second in that one night so i was making progress and luckily, the third round of the little 750 championship, I couldn't afford to do them all. So um, I was doing a few. 
was back at Silverstone and I won that one. So it was quite nice. So from third in the first, second in the second one, won the third one. Oh, it's an amazing start. And I get the feeling from, from you telling the story there, that it was a bit of a sort of family affair as well. You know, you using your mum's car and your dad was helping you with the preparation. Was, was that the case? Yes, yeah. very much yeah. so. My father was a photographer in Fleet Street mm-hmm. uh, for an agency called uh, Keystone, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, my brother was also a photographer and it was deemed that I was to be a photographer and I do love photography Um, but (laughs) my passion led me elsewhere but my father had a passion for fiddling with cars where he would decode mum's Morris Minor and was always fiddling with so he liked the mechanical side uh, of motor cars so dad prepared the car with me uh, and mum made the sandwiches and the tea and came along and stood and supported us. It, it was the most wonderful time. Well, you did in the end go on to have quite a nasty accident that put you in hospital for some time. Was that a, a strain on that f- sort of family dynamic looking after you at the time? It was. It was my first race of the following year, 1966, and it was at Brands Hatch and a I was friendly with a man called Pete Lokeman. Everybody, everybody was friendly who you raced against. If you had a problem with the car, they all came around to try and help you to get in the race. It was wonderful. And this man called Pete Lokeman had a Rejo, beautiful little uh, 1172 car. I was at the front end trying to get past um, Pete. I can't remember whether it was for the lead or for second place, but he spun at Paddock Bend. And as he slid sideways, I thought, I've got him. You know, I was getting very competitive by this, by this stage. And um, stupidly, with my naivety, when he started to spin, I assumed wrongly that he would spin to the inside of the circuit. So when he was sideways, I was there. As he started to go that way I accelerated to go back but then he came backwards mm. and he pushed me onto the grass and there used to be a regulation that the spectator banking had to be six feet high well from the circuit to the top of the spectator banking was probably only three or four feet so they put a made it a ditch so you could uh, measure from the bottom of the ditch to the top of the spectator banking so as I s- slid off onto the grass, avoiding Peter, um, it went down the ditch. And uh, I hit, hit the, uh, the earth bank, uh, the car dug in, it rolled, I half fell out, snapped my pelvis in half. Uh, by that time, I, I hit the dashboard with no seatbelts, which luckily turned the ignition off, the fuel pumps. So everything was silent on the engine department as the car was rolling uh, i was luckily unconscious by that stage so i was very very flexible i suppose and uh, i only broke i think one arm my pelvis or my ribs uh, i woke up about a week later in um, uh, a hospital in dartford wow and then mum never came to another race meeting sadly mm because she saw it all and uh, it was just a bit too... She always took interest and wanted to talk. Um, and I have to say, she did come to one or two, especially if we were going to nice places when I was in Formula <laughs> 3 and we were at Paul Ricard in the south of France. 
I think I'll come to that one. <laughs> but she didn't come to many. It did frighten her because they didn't know if I was going to wake up from this coma uh, that I was in for, for a while or not. So uh, it was pretty hard on one month. And what about you? Was it difficult to get back behind the wheel after that? No, no, not at all. Um, my biggest concern was my race car. Uh, it was in a hell of a state. Um, and again, the 750 Motor Club, the people that I'd met, I met a guy called Tiny Littler who had, um, he bought John Love's Formula One Cooper um, from South Africa and he used to race it in Formula Libra races. He had um, a body shop in South London and he took the car, repaired the chassis and everything for us. Uh, obviously, we had to buy parts and so on. But I was in hospital with this broken pelvis for in traction for some time. So the car was being worked on while I was in hospital. And my father, bless his heart, used to tow the chassis in its various stages of rebuild over a month or two. And if he parked it in a certain area of the car park at the hospital, I could see the car and the progress being made. Um, so as soon as I got out of um, hospital, the car was basically ready to go again. I, I was in plaster. I couldn't walk very well. Um, but uh, I got back in the car as soon as I could, eat, hooking the plaster around the gear lever to, to race and so on. Um, so, yes, it never occurred to me not to get back in the car. So how did you then go from that point to the point where, in 1974, you found yourself at the wheel of a Formula One car? What was the journey between those two points? I was lucky enough to meet a, a lad called John Cavill, who was racing a Formula Four with a Hillman Inp engine in the back. I thought they were great little cars, and I met a, a man from Dulwich, uh, called Bob Jarvis and they had several of these cars and I was desperate to race so they said what we'll do we'll we will lend you a car and so I did Formula 4 um, became very good friends with a fellow competitor John Cavill eventually stupidly I did a race at Ingleston in the Formula 4 against Bob Jarvis and there was prize money when you raced in Scotland, and I, it cost me all my money to get there. And I could do with winning the race to get the money to get home again, for petrol and so on. It was raining. Bob Jarvis was in the lead. I was in second place. Last corner. I've got, I've got to win this race. Totally forgetting he actually owned the car I was driving. Um, and I just, and I, I don't, I'm not a dirty driver and I don't think I've ever done it since, but I just happened to, to tap him as we went into the last corner. I slipped through on the inside and won the race and consequently lost my drive because of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I towed the car back down to Dulwich and that was that. But I was lucky enough through Firestone to meet a man called Sheridan Finn. Now, Sheridan Thin was at one time Nigel Mansell's manager and was uh, involved with Williams Formula One. And he had a Titan Mark IV Formula Ford. And he'd seen me race, bless his heart, and he lent me the Titan for a season. 
And uh, I raced against people like Jody Schechter, who had the Merlin and banged wheels with him and had a wonderful time in Formula Ford. Um, but Sherry then said at the end of the year, the car has to be sold. So I was back to scrounging again to try and get drives. I met a man called Jeremy Sumner, had a Chevron B8. I think it was either a B6 or a B8 with a two-litre BMW engine in it. And eventually he said, oh, for God's sake, okay, you keep on and on. Yes, you can drive my Chevron B8, but if you bend it, you have to mend it. You can come and do a race at Brands Hatch. I'm doing the GT race. You can do the Formula Libre race. It's just single-seater racing cars. You, you'll be the only GT car. It rained. And for some reason, I really enjoy dry racing in the rain. And it was called the Royal Tunbridge Wells Trophy. And I beat all the single-seaters, the Formula 3s and everything in this Chevron. I won the race. And, and again, a bit of a eureka moment. Um, at the end of uh, the race, Jeremy said, I, I don't believe that. Uh, I have to help you. And... At that time, John Cavill, racing his Formula 4, he used to ask me questions uh, such as, where do you break and change down for Gerrards at Mallory Park, Mike? And I said, I don't, it, because it's a little Hillman imp engine. It's absolutely flat in top from the hairpin back to the hairpin. You don't change down. You don't break. It's absolutely flat out. So he decided that he wasn't going to be a racing driver <laughs> and persuaded his father to buy me a Formula 3 car. This was in the beginning of 1972. And it dovetailed with Jeremy saying, I have to help you. He was into property and so on, and he introduced me to directors of a company called Dempster Developments who wanted to start a race team. I had a very good job by this time at Fireside. I've been there six or seven years. I was traveling down to Australia, America, everywhere, down to the target floor. I was having a ball. I was married by this time to Chrissy, and she was 100% supportive, bless her, and we were trying for a family. And it was deemed that, yes, they would provide all the running costs for me to do the European Formula 3 Championship and the two British Formula 3 Championships in 1972. I did not have time to go to work. So I said, well, how, how do we do this? I, I, I have to work to earn a living. So they said, okay, we'll pay your wages. You'll be a professional racing driver. And that was unbelievable for me but very difficult to leave a very good job at Firestone with a bit of security but Chrissy was very supportive and said yeah let's let's go do it um, and that was how I became a professional racing driver basically. Next week my conversation with Mike Wilds continues as he tells us the story of how he arrived in Formula One the moment when Jody Schechter demanded he speak with him at the US Grand Prix, plus memories of driving for Ikuria Kos and alongside Wynne Percy in the Group C Nissan at Le Mans in 1988. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. 
You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jcpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.